welcome to Tea Hanks for the Memories. I'm your host, Aaron, and today we're going to be talking about That Thing You Do. It was released on the 4th of October, 1996. Um, it was a mild flop. It didn't really make its money back, and, you know, uh, it kind of ended up becoming a cult classic. Uh, joining me to talk about this, I have returning guest Helen herbs Star. Hello, Helen. Hello. Uh, and I have Alex Gridette. Hello, Alex. Hey, gang. How's it going? And, of course, I have uh, Leandra Lynn joining us. Hello, Leandra. Hello, hello. Well, let's jump into it because, you know, as you said, there is this there is this fake song called Loving You Lots and Lots written, the sole credit goes to Tom Hanks. This is the only song in the entire film that he wrote by himself. Um, and it, it's sung by the Norm Wooster's singers, which is, when it started, I thought to myself, am I meant to recognize this song? Because I do not recognize this song. <laughs> they're they're um, not real a- people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so it's only later on that I was like, oh, right. OK, so that was completely every single song. I kept thinking, am I meant to know this song? This sounds familiar. But um, yeah, it turns out it was completely written by Tom Hanks. Um, and over the credits, we are introduced to, um, I guess we would say, our main character. I mean, um, you know, I know that the, the group is kind of the main character, but uh, you know, it takes us a little while to fully get introduced to them. Uh, where Tom Everett Scott is playing Guy Patterson, uh, who is working in his parents' uh, hardware store. His father is played by uh, Holmes Osborne. Uh, who I think was also the dad in Donnie Darko, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so he and he's he like he's not paying his son to, to work there. He says just working there because it's the family store. Um, and you know we see him like you know kind of closing down the store, and then he goes downstairs. He puts on an album by Del Paxton called Time to Blow, um, and he starts doing some drumming on the drum kit that he has under a under a sheet. I mean, that seems a bit cumbersome to keep putting that sheet back on those drums, but, you know, uh, I don't know any drummers myself personally who keep covering their drums up, uh, but I guess his father does not approve of his drumming. Maybe they have rats? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, possibly. Um, And, yeah, so we kind of, you know, we see him doing some some drumming and then doing some accounting. Uh, He gets a phone call because apparently he's accidentally left the sign on outside, Mm. and this is apparently creating the impression at eleven o'clock at night that they're still open, and his father's not happy about him wasting the uh, wasting the electricity. Um, And I think it's funny because, like, obviously, I was thinking his dad is going to be disapproving for like the whole film, and but his, I mean, his dad kind, I mean, kind of goes with the flow a little bit later on when (laughs) when he ends up being a drummer and and just kind of leaving. His dad doesn't say like you can't do it or anything, and then you know by the end of the film he ends up kind of becoming a cheerleader for him. So I thought that was a nice like thing. But then I don't think Tom Hanks would write a film where the dad is disapproving and, and tries to stop them. That's the thing. You know, Tom Hanks is just, you know, he wants to write a film about people being nice. And for the majority of this film, you know, people are fairly pleasant to each other. That's yeah, that's something that's the word. Pleasant is absolutely the word. And it's something that's always popped out to me is that it the movie keeps feeling like it's heading in the direction of these very, very familiar, very dramatic tropes. Uh, for this kind of band gets together, band falls apart kind of movie, uh, and then just blows right past them, which I, I feel like ordinarily, like you could sit there and make an argument, well, for that's just lazy screenwriting because you're setting up, there's going to be this head-to-head and it never comes to that, and it's just it's just not that kind of movie. And I think so much of the movie is such a charm offensive that it doesn't really matter, you know? Uh, I wasn't, I, if anything, I was more relieved that we weren't going to have to sit through the 100th uh, father tells his son, you're never going to make it scene. He's just like, oh, I'm going to have to get somebody to replace you now. Um, 
and then he, he promotes the other employee and then and she's like does that mean you're going to pay me and he's like i didn't i didn't say that so you know <laughs> like, yeah you, i think you know. it's meant to be a light-hearted loving send-up of of that sort of man that sort of father uh, mm-hmm. in, in many ways it's like a love letter to the 60s so it paints a lot of stuff as silly but in a loving way hmm. or you know uh, stern but still in a sweet pleasant way <laughs> yeah i think i really um, enjoy that all of these stakes in the film are tied mm-hmm. almost exclusively to the music they uh, they do a lot of character development but all of the uh, all of the things that happen that end up having a resolution that is somewhat intense it's all music related which i love mm-hmm. yeah um, and when uh, when Gus finally gets off work and he's able to go to the local, I'm guessing, malt shop, I think we should say, um, in there we have th- this band, and they haven't got a name yet because they're, they're just all discussing different titles to call, like, what should they call their band? Um, and they're really kind of struggling to come up with a catchy name. They keep coming up with wordplay, you know, kind of the, the kind of the chordettes is, is, is put mm-hmm. forward at one point where, you know, the chord is as in musical chords um there's a whole lot of that going on the um, herdsman like you heard with yeah. your ears <laughs> yeah keep coming back so the, to the herdsman <laughs> that like the, the like the constant i mean the thing is as well having having known musicians myself uh and having been a musician myself uh in in the past um this is really what musicians are like once they're in a group they just can't like if they're not if they're not officially like in a band, they will be constantly coming up with names that they would mm-hmm. think a band would sound good for. And, you know, I like that we kind of immediately get the kind of the friendship between uh, Steve Zahn and Tom Everett Scott, uh, where Steve Zahn keeps calling him Skitch. Like he's got like mm-hmm. a nickname for him. And, you know, he's kind of making fun of him. And he's also kind of making fun of the process of naming the band. Like, mm-hmm. his character doesn't read. It's what I love about Steve Zahn in this film. And obviously Steve Zahn is a national treasure. Um, mm-hmm. In particular, in Out of Sight. I mean, I love him in this mm-hmm. film, but Out of Sight is always my favorite. Like, that's the first time I really noticed him. And I was like, who the hell is this guy? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was like, oh, right. He's the he's the gay guy from Reality Bites. That's who he is. Now I, now I recognize him. That's global uh, but- treasure Steve Zahn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I like that his character kind of almost like does not care about anything apart from the girls. Like that's literally the only thing on his mind is like, you know, they want to play the talent contest so that they can get the girls. Like he only wants to be in a band and play music so he can get the girls. Like his focus is not really on the band. Like, you know, he can kind of sing and he plays guitar and he gets to do some solos. But he's not like, you know, he's not he's not in the same mold as uh jimmy or gus who were both like very committed musicians um yeah i i love that first of all i love that and i noticed this when i just watched it the other night like clearly i could picture steve zahn's copy of the script where next to each line he's written just like choices like because he's (laughs) he, he swings for the fence with every single line no exceptions and ordinarily that would be disruptive or distracting uh but he's he's such a charmer that it absolutely that it absolutely works and i was admiring that he walks the line very well that lenny is this horny goof but who never switch who never crosses over into creep you know he's he's he he's just harmless enough that even when he says some stuff like it's like wow that's 
certainly by today's standards, but probably even by the standards of the time. It's like he, he's such a goofball that kind of who cares. And of course, uh, you know, the main the main uh, the lead of the band, the lead singer is uh, played by Jonathan Sheck. And, um, you know, his James is very kind of um, as was, you know, a lot of singers at the time, very brooding, very kind of, you know, into the music. Um, and, you know, they have a song that he has written, which he is insisting is a ballad, um, which is obviously the title of the, the, the film, which is That Thing You Do, uh, obviously written about his girlfriend, played by, of course, the radiant uh, Liv Tyler, Faye Dolan. Um, and, you know, within like within that, we have the like the tension that both Jimmy and Guy are serious musicians and they both like have very specific ideas about, you know, what the music is. Um, and then up against that, you have Ethan Embry playing a character who is literally just called the bass player. Um, player. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, so that's that's what I like is like, um, you know, Ethan, and as well, Ethan Embry is is great in this, um, you know, like uh, he was kind of very, I don't know, he played like a very kind of like spaced out character in Empire Records. So it's nice to have his character be a little bit more kind of focused in this. Um, although obviously we'll find out later on that he's not long to be in the band. Um, but oh, he's I... so boyish and sweet, though. <laughs> he's so sincere. Guys, yeah. Chad and... fell down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. In a like in a scene where the rest of the band are discussing stuff, in the background we have Giovanni Ribisi, um, famously uh, brother-in-law of Beck. Um, singer and um he 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 is jumping parking meters uh, and along with uh along with the bass player like the pair of them are kind of and i like it's it's really weird because when i was watching this i was like what are they doing like how, like why are they jumping these parking meters um, and then obviously uh, like you know they're they're with varying degrees of success they're doing this and then you know, uh, Giovanni Ribisi, Ribisi falls out of shot, and it's like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, right. Now I get it. He's going to huh. get injured so that Gus can join the band. Yes, um, their drummer just broke his arm. Yeah. Before the big uh, talent show at the college with all the co-eds, you know. <laughs> yes, which apparently will be there by the fistful, um, yeah. as described. The fistful by... of co-eds. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I've seen that. Um... <laughs> <laughs> That's just the collective noun for co-eds. <laughs> just fistfuls. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, this is effectively kind of like the first domino falling. Uh, I don't know if anyone's ever seen that meme where it's like a little tiny domino and then a whole load of big mm-hmm. dominoes. And obviously we're at the smallest domino, which is Chad breaks his arm. And that will just keep leading to a sequence of things where we'll eventually lead to the wonders being on television. Um, and I mean, later on, Liv Tyler states that literally to um, to Tom Everett Scott's face. <laughs> she like, mm-hmm. literally is like, you know, if you hadn't joined the band, this wouldn't have happened. Um and, you know, so they can make sure that Gus is OK with playing, uh, you know, the, the one track that they're going to play because they're in a talent contest. And, you know, everyone's only got like one shot. Um, they go to um, they go to the garage and, you know, he kind of re- rehearses it um, and he, you know, picks it up pretty quick. And they, they say to him, you know, it took Chad three weeks to kind of get a grip of that, <laughs> uh, mm. which maybe suggests that Chad is not the best drummer to be in the band. Also, I should say as well. At no point throughout this film does Chad ever get bitter and angry that he was like huge it, shout out to really... Chad, such a good natured yeah. kid who like ultimately mm-hmm. sort of as Gus replaces him in the band, Chad slowly starts to replace Gus in like his own family life. Mm-hmm. I'm one of my favorite. I'm things. the new guy now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so Chad is is pretty happy with this situation. I mean, I'm guessing he probably wasn't that much in. If he if it took him three weeks to learn what is one of the more simpler rhythms in the entire <laughs> film, I'm I'm guessing he probably wasn't that much into being in the band. He probably just like hanging around with the guys and you know was just like yeah sure I'll play the drums why not. Um, and so after they have rehearsed um, that thing you do uh, the title track, um, you know they decide that they they're going to this talent contest. And they 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 kind of finally come up with a name. Um, in a stroke of genius, they are going to call themselves the Wonders, but the One is going to be the other way that you say One. Um, <laughs> which, of course, for the first I don't know, like forty five minutes of this film, will lead mm-hmm. to a lot of confusion uh, in terms of their introductions, um, as of course they are introduced as the uh, Oneidas. Um, and they have to correct every person that introduces them that they are the wonders. Um, and I think, really, if they wanted this to kind of work, they instead of spelling it out, they should have just used the number one because that would make the the pun more clear. But um, you know, they 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 went a different route. I um, I you know. I've I've always kind of loved that this really confusing spelling of the wonders. I I love that it's Faye's idea. Because it feels like in a much cleaner cut movie that was sort of less reliant on people behaving how they behave, it would be Jimmy who comes up with with this this convoluted thing mm-hmm. uh, that works on paper and not at all out loud, uh, or works on paper or out loud, but not both. Um, and it feel like I love that Jimmy like embraces it immediately, but the fact that the fact that it's Faye's idea makes the movie kind of messy, which is something I enjoy about it. It makes things feel very sort of accidental and kind of spontaneous. And uh, just before we move on from the scene, because I know we're about to get to the talent show that changes everything, but I love that yes. after, we, you know, we come in on them rehearsing the song at the tail end, and they finish, and, like, just before Guy starts packing up his drums, he plays the drum riff, that will wind up yep. at the talent show kicking this into uh, into uh, a pop number instead of a ballad, and he's not he's not, he's not trying to insert himself into it. It's just that's his brain is just working, and that's just what he hears, and he's perfectly fine with it being a ballad. But I love planting that little seed there that he hears this song, and the first thing that comes to his mind mm-hmm. is this riff that will speed it up. Yeah, and I, th- I think as well, like, that's the important thing, like, in terms of, like, the song, obviously, you know, the lyrics and the singing is done by, uh, you know, Jimmy and Lenny, but obviously it, the thing that makes it different is the contribution that comes from uh, Guy. Obviously, the bass player just plays the bass. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I like the, the, the kind of the... You know the, the the singing and the guitar playing and everything is already there, but it it's kind of it needs guy to kind of improve it and turn it into the song that obviously will become the hit. Um, you know, which you know it just reinforces the fact that without him, you know, they probably would mm-hmm. never have won the talent show. Speaking of which, we get to the talent show, mm-hmm. and Charlie Theron appears as Tina, uh, girlfriend of the new drummer, um, guy. And she is not really that interested in anything that's going on. Mm-hmm. She's, you know, she wants to know how long it's going to take, you know, and, and you know, how long they're going to have to be there. We see a couple of other acts that come out, um, one of which is like uh, kind of a girl group folk act, which, um, I, you know, I feel are designed to deliberately be terrible because everybody kind of hates them and is yelling stuff. Um, 
And then they are. What's funny as well is while they're on, you know, while the other acts are on stage, obviously the wonders are backstage set trying to set up all their stuff. But obviously there's limited space on stage, particularly when this kind of like, um, you know, brass octet is on stage and mm. they, they're trying to set up their their kind of you know the amps and stuff and trying to kind of get around them. Um, and I think that's kind of funny because it's like you know this is how unimportant they are. You know, they're just one act of many of these acts. Um, you know, throughout this night. So it's like they're not getting special time to kind of set up their, their equipment or anything. They kind of have to set up around the other acts while stuff's going on. Mm. Um, uh, which, you know, rings true of talent contests where I have been, you know, previously where, you know, I've had friends that were playing and stuff. And basically, you know, you, you all share one drum kit. It's like, okay, you're like seven different rock bands who are playing tonight. Well, you're all just sharing the one drum kit. We're not, you know, we're not taking off a drum kit and bringing a new one on. Just get used to this drum kit. Um, and you know we've got like two stacks of amps and that's it like plug yourself in and unplug when you finish you know there's no there's no swapping of stuff around so I like the fact that, that, that you know they're not given the space they're just like just set up while everybody else is on um, and of course this is the first time they, they get um, introduced incorrectly <laughs> as the Onidas and then they immediately correct the guy and say no it's the wonders um and the crowd the crowd at this point I, i'm guessing are kind of restless they're not really into anything that's been going on um tina is not into anything either she's kind of just checking her makeup and not really paying attention uh, obviously you know, indicating straight away that she's not really that supportive of guy which of course contrasts immediately um with Liv tyler who is extremely supportive of the entire band and is you know extremely enthusiastic as they start playing um, that thing you do. Obviously, as we said, uh, Guy decides to play it at a quicker pace. I'm not quite sure what takes him. He's just like, I guess he just feels like that's the pace it should be played at. And of course, uh, both the guitarists are kind of protesting and saying, slow down, especially Jimmy. Um, but as soon as it gets to the vocals, they just have to start singing. Mm -hmm. um, and what I like here is the kind of, um, you know, the interplay between Jimmy and Lenny when they're on stage. Like, um, off stage, they don't seem like they're, you know, the closest of friends. You know, it seems like uh, Jimmy is a bit more distant to everybody else. But on stage, they have that kind of the interaction between each other where as they're doing, you know, as as um, uh, Lenny is doing the backing vocals, he's obviously kind of looking at Jimmy uh, for the cues and stuff. And they're kind of, you know, when they get to the guitar solo, he's obviously walking over to um, to Guy and kind of, you know, having a discussion with him and, you know, like kind of just having a bit of a stage presence, um, which, you know, I think is one of the reasons obviously why they end up succeeding is because, you know, they they kind of instantly gel on stage. And, you know, Tom Hanks really shoots it in a way so that we can see that happening, uh, you know, with each, you know, as the song goes on, we kind of feel that they are, you know, they're not just like a bunch of guys that ask their friend to play drums. You know, they have now kind of um, come together uh, and they are, you know, a, a true kind of like band on stage, uh, you know, and I think that was, that was kind of interesting. Um you know, worth pointing out as well, DP is uh, Tak Fujimoto, uh, who has done a number of films. Um, but he worked he, he, he worked a lot with uh, Jonathan Demi. I say worked as if he's dead. He's not dead. He's still alive. He just hasn't done a film for a few years. Um, but he worked with Jonathan Demi on Philadelphia. And I'm thinking that is where Tom got the recommendation of if you're going to direct a film. And obviously, Jonathan Demi appears later in the film, <laughs> making a cameo as well. Um, I think he was like, maybe use Tak. You know, Tak's a good, he's a good guy, um, you know. Science of Land is an amazing looking film. Um, so, you know, maybe bring him in. And this film is, you know, I wouldn't say there's anything spectacular about the way that it's shot, but it's done in a way that is, you know, extremely straightforward um, and just kind of feels, it feels like, you know, the direction and the, the kind of cinematography feel very Tom Hanks. It's like, 
there's no fuzzing or anything it's just literally and i think that's kind of you know it's particularly noticeable during this kind of first full performance of a song that you will have to love or hate because you are going to hear it a half dozen more times in this film um but i think this first performance is probably one of the, the like kind of the really like it has to sell that the audience is really into it and obviously all the you know all the girls start gearing up and dancing and by the end you know they clearly win and i i think it's kind of believable that that has happened you know within the course of of the kind of like two and a half minutes as they perform this song um this is a really important moment because it is the first time you hear this song all the way through and it is like they had to have a really magical song to make any of this story believable <laughs> for this movie um and i think um adam schlesinger wrote it um and it, i think like yes i love that's a hero absolute hero um and yeah it like absolutely nailed that sort of like 1960s pop hit radio number um that that is like catchy enough to buy that everyone would would buy this song um but like not so catchy that it will drive you too crazy by the time the movie's over and they do some like smart peppering in of other songs throughout so you hear other stuff at times um i do i think it's really impressive though how many times they are able to play that thing you do almost in its entirety in this movie um and it's a testament to how good the song itself is and how well they perform it. Yeah, I want to I wanna echo that. Um, and actually, I have kind of a group project uh, that I would love you guys' help with. But it's like, I've been watching this movie for 25 years, and the song appears in it 11 times. And as soon as we're off this call, I could put the song on right away and be perfectly happy. And I don't... There are whole-ass Beatles songs that you can't say that about. Like, I, I don't... I don't know what alchemy or wizardry adam schlesinger brought to bear on this but i think i mean it is the perfect pop song like it's it's simple it's evocative it's period perfect and again you hear it 11 times in the course of the movie without getting tired of it and i don't know how you do that i also really like that every time they do it it's ever so slightly different like the first time they sing it the jimmy's a little bit behind the beat because he's like this is far mm. too fast this is a ballad i don't know what i'm doing and the phrasing is slightly different every single time and i think that that mm -hmm. helps with making it seem fresh and in some very subtle ways too like i i always like the fact that the soundtrack has two versions of the song on it it has the the Uncle Bob version, which we'll get to the context for in just a minute, which is basically your stock uh, version of that thing you do that you hear the most in the movie. Uh, I wish it had the talent show version, which is just like a couple of BPM faster and is like almost as close as you get to like the punk version of that thing you do in this movie. And then you have the Hollywood showcase version from the end, which in addition to having crowd sound effects on it is just a little bit of a fuller mix. It's a little bit more polished and it's also a little more lifeless, which is a very subtle art and has something uh, has a lot to do with the storytelling of the movie too, to feel that way. Uh, but it is interesting watching the song get more polished, but also to lose its vitality as it goes. Uh, again, without you getting tired of it, but just that there's something a little fatigued about it by the end. Um, the group project that, and Darren, I'm sorry to derail the synopsis, but this feels like the time to bring it up. Uh, if I'm not, if it's not peppering in too many spoilers, 
I read that the song appears 11 times in the movie. I can only count 10 off the top of my head. Um, and I want to see if we can work out where the 11th was, and it's just not occurring to me. But the 10 that I have are in Jimmy's Garage, where it's a ballad, uh, at the talent show, the the punk version, uh, at Villa Pianos, after, after uh, Sean Whalen heckles them into playing it so they can meet girls and dance, uh, when Uncle Bob records it in the church, that's four. Five is when they hear it on the radio, which is we're 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 gonna stop dead and talk about that scene in a little bit because that's that's one of the best scenes anyone's ever directed. Um, uh, in Pittsburgh, when when they bomb in Pittsburgh uh, on the Bosvik Cost Show, uh, two times when they're on tour, once at the beginning uh, and once at the end of the tour sequence. Uh, it's heard on the radio when they're making the rounds for um, with with the DJs, like with Paul Feig and everybody. Uh, and then at the Hollywood Showcase, which uh, which gets us to 10. But I'm missing one and I don't know where it is. Is it not over the end credits or am I thinking of something else? No, actually, what, the song that's over the end credits. It's another which, that thing you do. <laughs> because and this is anecdotal, but I'm pretty sure it's on the money. To get the title song for this, Tom Hanks basically held a contest among professional songwriters with the only parameters where it had to sound period appropriate for 1964 and be called or incorporate the phrase, that thing you do. And the winner was Adam Schlesinger's very perfect pop song. Uh, and then the runner up was the end credit song, uh, I Need You, parentheses, That Thing You Do, which was written by... Uh, Scott Rognes, Rick Elias, and Linda Elias, who wrote a bunch of the rest of the songs in it. So I feel like they came in second in that competition and then probably uh, had a better, either more availability to write additional songs or a better uh, better rate quote to write additional songs. <laughs> but so, so it's not over the end credits because I, I really do love the fact that like, after the Hollywood showcase, you never hear this song again in the movie. Mm -hmm. Like they are, they are legit done. But if we can figure out that eleventh, I'll be a happy man. Maybe someone's confusing the song that plays over the end credits that has the same title. It's Maybe possible. That's it's very possible. Yeah. I tried to do a head count while I was watching it the other night, but um, I'd had a weed gummy, so uh, <laughs> as much as that was helping my attention, it was also not helping my concentration. Well, there is also that really gorgeous. Um, purely vocal rendition that guy's dad does after the hollywood showcase that he just sings and pretends oh. to be drumming and and chad says that's hilarious i wonder oh, if that's lyrics. what we're counting is so the good. 11th yeah yeah i yeah, wonder that, if that's like, what I'm people are loving that thing you do or whatever he does <laughs> i wonder <laughs> yeah. if that's what somebody counted as the 11th version let's it's let's go with possible. that go squad if i win something we'll say yes that was it <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'd send you a T-shirt, uh, yeah, but so you're covered. From, from their victory, as mentioned, they, they get another gig uh, at the local pizza place uh, called Via Pianos. And, uh, you know, it's so successful that they decide they should, you know, record a copy of, uh, of this song. And they should start selling it for, for a buck ago, they say. Um, and I think it's quite interesting because obviously, the, you know, we've had a bit of mention earlier from Guy that he had an uncle who used to let him play music and used to play music with him. Um, and then we find out oh, it's funny because Lenny's kind of laughing about Uncle Bob 
and the existence of Uncle Bob and what Uncle Bob possibly is. And so we're kind of thinking this is going to be some kind of joke thing where, you know, like it's not really somebody who's in the music industry. Uh, but it is kind of, I mean, he is kind of in the music industry because he records choirs, um, you know, which is a that's a complicated thing to do to record, you know, kind of church choirs. Um, and obviously he offers to, you know, record the song for them. Um, and with this being the 60s, of course, they do exactly one take of both songs, the A side and the B side. And that's that's it. There's no uh, Uncle Bob is like, that's it. You know, like I, I've got to go record, a you know, a children's choir somewhere. I don't have the time to be hanging around with you guys. You know, I've recorded it. That's it. Like it's that's the end of the deal. Um, Uncle Bob, of course, played by uh, early 90s heartthrob Chris Isaac, um, you know, just kind of showing up out of nowhere. Uh, to all of a sudden be Uncle Bob. And um, never appearing again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was, I was like, okay, uh, there's Chris Isaac. Well, he's uh, I another, guess that's, he's, that's what he was doing. He's another Jonathan Demi guy. <laughs> so I feel yeah. like that's where that connection came in. That probably is, yeah. Because um, there are a few people in this who have worked with Jonathan Demi, along with Jonathan Demi, who obviously yeah. has worked with himself his entire life. R.I.P. Jonathan Demi. Um, mm. And so, you know, from, from the success of that, and they, you know, they, they go to record... And then, of course, um, you know, uh, a guy has been kind of hanging around who is not one of the screaming teenage girls. Um, and it turns out he is a manager, uh, but only a manager in the sense that he can get them on local radio. Um, and he makes them a deal where he says, you know, I'll get you on local radio, um, you know, in the next few weeks or, you know, I'll tear up the contract and we won't ever work again. Well, he can um, also get them shows in Pittsburgh and Steubenville. So, like, mm-hmm. that's huge. Yeah. Steubenville. Well, yeah. I mean, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> He's a really nice camper, as Lenny reminds us. <laughs> I don't think... Yeah. I don't think that that was ever a nice camper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Chris Ellis is playing their first manager. Uh, he obviously worked with Tom Hanks in Apollo 13, playing Deke Slayton. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm guessing that is probably where Tom was like, I am, you know doing my film you know later this year do you want to come and be in it for like three scenes Mm -hmm. Uh, and i'm sure as with most people who appear in this film all tom hanks had to say was can you come along and be in the film for like one scene and they're like yeah sure tom um you know you're obviously the most beloved person on the planet Mm -hmm. so i'm not going to say no to you who would say Mm -hmm. no to tom hanks quite frankly and given the amount of cameos in this film it looks like nobody said no to tom hanks um you know you mentioned Liv tyler and everyone comes running like Mm -hmm. (laughs) well yes uh, I'm, I'm thinking Charlie's there on probably also got some people to say yes as well. Hmm. Um, yeah. So and of course, we, we then get to the kind of well, first of all, we have to in classic rom-com fashion, uh, dispose of the one girlfriend. And we do that by having Tina going to the dentist and the dentist is extremely hunky. And that apparently is the end of her relationship with Guy. She saw a hunky dentist and that's it. She's out of the film. Uh, uh, yeah, no resolution scene. I, I, no. And right, and and it it's mentioned one more time later on, and it's just as a thing that happened. You know, guy is never yeah. especially yeah. guy is never heartbroken about this. I mean, he's been, like for 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 nineteen sixty four, he's like too clean cut and and white to be like a pothead. But like another year or two, he a thousand percent would be like he's his 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 vibe is so <laughs> mellow to begin with. Oh, um, he's one of those white jazz guys as well. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yuri's last beatnik, they say. Yeah. Like he says, he literally says those cats don't know squat about service <laughs> from <laughs> the appliance store. Like he drives but, me bonkers. 
Oh yeah, but um, but I I do love that it's it's this kind of. It's not like the central thesis of the movie of like I like Ike America versus like hippie America. That's because that's not what 1964 was about. But I do like and it says a lot about Tina that not only is the dentist that she leaves Guy for hunky, but he is very like Norman Rockwell. Like he he is that I like Ike kind of hunk. There is nothing corn fed. Yeah. The, and nothing controversial or beatniky about him at all. Just an extraordinarily handsome guy, uh, and and uncomplicated too. So I I feel like it says much more about Tina than it does about Guy. But like this is, yeah, they they, they were not a good match to begin with. No. And I think it's funny because obviously we, you know, when we get to the end, obviously we'll discuss the, mm-hmm. you know, the various little uh, like uh, title cards that come up that kind of give us people's lives. Um, but it would have been nice if they'd been like, and the dentist was drafted to Vietnam and died <laughs> in, in 1969. <laughs> and, you know, like that's what I. The thing is, unfortunately, that is having having recently watched Forrest Gump. That is what is in the back of my mind with all of these teenagers is like, oh god, in a few oh, years. No. They're all going to be drafted, and 50% of them are going to be in Vietnam. You you bring up an exceptional point, because how old are the Wonders supposed to be? I know the bass player is on the young side, and he does, in fact, join the Marines and go to Vietnam. But, like, th- they all feel sort of post-college to me, and Guy makes yeah, reference I'm... to having been stationed in Germany, in the mm-hmm. army, and, like, they, they all feel like this is their first thing out of the nest but they're also called teen sensations which i always took to mean more they are a sensation with the teens than teens themselves oh yeah i would uh, to me personally i thought maybe the bass player is literally like a teenager but everybody yeah. else seems to be around like 22 23 yeah that was my feeling know, as well kind of okay around cool. that area they're not trying to it doesn't seem like they're trying to play them as teenagers because quite frankly uh, tom everett scott and jonathan check do not they do not look like teenagers no. and they could not be teenagers and um, and and to to the point you brought up a moment ago i think it i i think it's a smart choice to have them be that age because otherwise this whole movie would have just a total pall over it where it's like oh shit if they're not successful they're going to war um and that would definitely that would ding some of the pleasantness that we were uh that we were talking about before i mean unfortunately because boomers are obsessed with the 60s it means they make most of their stuff about the (laughs) 60s but they unfortunately forget what happened after that it was the 70s and you know things went downhill pretty quick Hmm. um reminds me of that simpsons joke where they say that the 60s ended when they sold that van 31st (laughs) of december 1969 (laughs) which is a, a great line um yeah so i mean i would say as well leave tyler at the time was 19 i think when she was shooting this film um so you know th- that kind of makes sense that she's you know only going out with someone who's a few years older than her um but yeah i always i was i was reading them as like 20 22 23 that kind of age um you know when you say teen sensation yes sensation with the teens not teens themselves uh kind of made sense to me um yeah, so, of course, um, you know, uh, their manager is true to his word. And, uh, you know, he gets them some gigs, but also he gets their song onto the radio. And, um, you know, he says to them, it's going to be on the radio. So, of course, everyone then spends <laughs> their entire days just listening to the radio nonstop, um, hearing snippets of fake songs written by other people 
um, that appear kind of here and there just before they, they actually get to hear their own song. And then, of course, they hear their song on the radio and they get extremely excited about it. I think Ethan Embry is the first one who hears it, isn't he? On the, or is Liv Tyler the first Liv one who hears Tyler. it? It's, 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 yeah, it's she, Faye while she's mailing letters. Yep. Yeah. And she nearly but swallows he's listening out a stamp for when she hears it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, he's definitely listening out for it because he's got his, his, uh, his earpiece in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, the bass yeah. player is at like the Army Navy surplus store, and Faye runs into him on the way to the appliance <laughs> store, um, and they switch their radios to the same station, and they just scream yeah. and run joyfully <laughs> down the sidewalk. It's incredible. It's such yeah, an like, I don't think this is necessarily what they were going for, but it certainly drafts off the comparison. But like, it's the two of them running down the street just. Just so joyously and with the song playing, but it's also like got a lot of Jules and Jim energy to it of the trio running across the the trestle together, which is just like, but also is a little bit hard day's night. Like there's there's a lot of intentional or not, there's a lot of like cinematic power in what's going on on screen. And I think. I don't think it's accidental. I don't think it's... Well, you've got to get these references to really enjoy this experience. But I think it just sort of drafts off of those things and lets it all hit you in the face and the heart. And, at, of course, as this is happening, then uh, uh, Lenny pulls up and just leaves his car in the middle of the street. <laughs> oh, that's my favorite. And gets out... Uh, with Jimmy, of course, this is because like uh, to start off with, I'm like, why? You know, what is going on with the appliance store? But of course, I feel that Tom Hanks was very clever in that he, you know, set up uh, Chekhov's radio in that <laughs> everybody comes in and he can now have all these radios playing the song. And it kind of makes sense that everyone can hear the song at the same time. Um, you know, uh, notably, of course, um, uh, Tina missed this. She didn't she didn't hear the song on the radio so she, but she's not bothered so who cares um yeah but i do i i mean like the kind of obviously what what tom hanks is trying to convey here is the that kind of that excitement um which you know obviously in this modern world does not exist um you know mm. because obviously anybody can stick anything on spotify so you mm-hmm. know like there's no excitement but you know the kind of uh, the the fact that they've managed to get onto the radio, uh, only local radio, of course, but still, you know, like the the level of excitement. But also, what I like about this is it means that they're, you know, Phil Horace, the manager, he, like he wasn't trying to scam them or anything. He just genuinely liked their song and he managed to get on the radio. And you know, straight away you're like, oh, we're there. Hold on, this doesn't make any sense. Like, so he's just a good manager who just like liked them and decided to do something nice for them. Like, it's just it's it's such a kind of baffling thing, I think. Particularly for me, watching the first time through. Well, it gave them soup. There's... It was very nice. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a bit of weird direction with a couple of the characters, Phil Horace being one of them. And I think, again, we're also like attuned as an audience of previous music biopics where it's like, oh, don't trust this guy. And But also, strangely, like Phil is kind of directed to not seem, not come across that trustworthily. Um... And then to have him be as good as his word, it's another one of these the fake outs that this movie does where it's like, oh, this is going to go badly. Oh, it went fine. It actually went great. <laughs> um, and the movie keeps doing that, like keeps having these moments of suspense that key you up, but then flip over into everything just sort of going OK. Yeah. And what what I love about it is it's just like, you know, he just he, like he said, sign the contracts and I'll get you onto local radio. Otherwise, we'll tear them up. 
and he got him onto local radio and their song is playing and they're all happy about it and it's like okay so he was you know he was as good as his word and then obviously he's got them the gig uh, where um, Kevin Pollock is is going to come out and do the introductions. Boss and Nick what I like, a, well, what I like about what I like about Kevin Pollock's character is he has like way too like it feels like there's a whole separate film going on where this guy is like the main character and he just wanders into this film and he's got this whole back and forth with the audience and they've got like call and response and it's like what is who is this guy? And it, it, you know, it's just, it's just Kevin Pollock in for one scene. And that's, that's pretty much it. And it's just like, that's such a, a weird kind of thing to happen for Kevin Pollock to just kind of turn up and be like in this one single scene. And I was just like, Oh, okay. Um, uh, but obviously he is the kind of, I don't know what's, he doesn't like, I don't know if there's, there's meant to be some kind of showbiz thing that he's referencing, but he's just the guy who kind of, he does this introduction and he doesn't he doesn't like really seem to care about them like the act comes out and there's like the microphones aren't working um and then once they do get them working there's a ton of feedback and you know they get booed off stage and you know all he's doing from the side is just like screaming play some music now like he's he doesn't really seem to care about their particular um you know kind of circumstance uh, which, you know, when when we get to meet the, you know, the star of the show in the next scene, obviously that's something that will be fixed. Um, because, you know, uh, as in a TV series later adapted featuring another actor with his name, Mr. White is not going to be messing about. Um, <laughs> I, I like as well that they, like, this is the point where kind of Phil, he, he kind of goes to this diner, um, you know, it's not a diner. It's the what is it? He says, "Try some, try some Eastern it's, food." It's, yeah, it's a Chinese it's a restaurant. Chinese yeah, restaurant. It's a Chinese restaurant. Yeah, yeah. So he takes him to this Chinese restaurant and he's like, "Oh, look at this!" By coincidence, here is here is Mister White. Um, you know, like the head of uh, you know A and R for for Playtone Records. He just happens to be in this restaurant. Um, and I think this it's obvious that this is kind of a setup. But like Phil obviously knew this guy, and obviously he's played the record for Mister White. Mister White obviously likes the band. Um, you know, but also he has just seen them disastrously get booed off stage. Um, but at the same time, that hasn't soured him. He's like, you know, you'll you'll do another performance later on and you'll be better. And, you know, it's fine. Like, you know, I, I will start. I will manage you. And I like as well that there's a little bit of loyalty from uh, Guy because he's like, you know, Phil is our manager. Like, you know, obviously the results that they've had of getting these gigs and being on the radio. So obviously he's a little bit loyal to him. And Phil himself is like, no, I'm not going to be your manager anymore. This guy's going to be your manager. He's a better manager. He's got more access to more things. Like, you you know, you're bigger than just this, like, local area. Um, so I like that. You know, I like the guy who was kind of, like, loyal to, to Phil. Even though, you know, he's only known him for, like, a week. He's still, he's not willing to kind of throw him under the bus and just, you know, go to the next big guy. He's like, no, you know, Phil's the manager. Um, you know, and then I like that Tom Hanks, obviously here playing Mr. White, is like, no, Phil's not your manager anymore. I'm your manager. <laughs> so like, you know, uh, get over that. You know, Mr. White is another like to me is like I was just saying about about Phil a moment ago, where it's strange because Tom Hanks was like not only so beloved and popular, but like known for being trustworthy and gentle like like well like he is now i don't know why i'm explaining tom hanks to people <laughs> i feel like we grasp the concept of tom hanks and it's so weird to me because mr white is actually kind of distant and 
for Tom Hank for a Tom Hanks character, almost a little menacing. And he really like that never I mean, look, he's he's a fairly mercenary guy, and you get the sense that even in the young field of rock and roll, he has already seen everything. Like that's why one bad afternoon performance doesn't phase him. It's why, you know, he has faith in what the band can do because he's heard them do it and that's all he needs them to do. Uh, but that's kind of a mercenary character for Tom Hanks to play. Uh, so there is... I, I remember watching it and being like, well, wait, where's, you know, America's dad, Tom Hanks? I'm not... It. I, I had a real hard time not like feeling like I couldn't trust him. And I remember the friend that I saw it with said, you know, I get where you're coming from, but it's Tom Hanks. So I was like, we're fine. Don't worry about it. He's there. It's like, right. it's played <laughs> like he's the heartless record exec, but oh, it turns out he has a heart at the very right. abrupt ending, you know? So I, I found it a little disappointing, honestly, personally, because they do sort of sell Mr. White as a little bit of something different than I think he turns out to be, or they're wishy-washy on the kind of character he is like Tom Hanks wasn't sure that he couldn't be a hundred percent pure or a hundred percent impure and just at the very end was like follow your dreams he doesn't say that but it, it, it sort of feels that way rainbows come out of him at the end and he disappears <laughs> I remember when I first saw this I was like oh he's gonna be skeevy with Liv T uh, Tyler isn't he and like there are a couple of scenes where they interact and since I was already like that's gonna happen I was like ah see it's they're setting it up but no it's Tom <laughs> Hanks why would he do that <laughs> yeah he's like no I'll just uh, I'll get her a nice dress and I'll have a head and like yeah you know, I know that's 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 another that's another one of those like suspense fake outs where it's like when, when they're yep. not to jump way ahead but like they're backstage they've just met who their new bassist is gonna be and guy sidelines sidebars with Mr. White and he's like hey wait a minute where's Faye and Mr. White's like oh I've taken care of it and it's like it's I'm like oh is, is she like locked in her hotel room is this like what's about and he's like <laughs> no, oh no Mr. She's, White she's out on Rodeo me. Drive she's out on Rodeo Drive having like a merry old Land of Oz style like makeover <laughs> having a pretty woman montage uh, hashtag like, wild women do and I mean it's <laughs> it's uh, so again it's these weird kind of fake outs where it's like it's like I'm gonna say the very untrustworthy thing but I'm actually very trustworthy and yes. it's <laughs> which is such a weird experience but I love it I love it but I thought we weren't yeah. supposed to like him he called her a costume mistress I don't know how to feel <laughs> right by my